This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tell Me the Story. This is Blaze Webster. Today, we'll be doing another interlude episode. And uh, for this episode, I want to focus primarily on the biblical story, just outlining it out, which I think can be really uh, beneficial for us to, um, to just organize everything. Because something... When you have something as big as the Bible, as complicated as it appears to be, it can be really intimidating, and it's easy to lose track of details. But uh, I've found always that uh, any sort of organization, especially for something this big, uh, can really help just down the line. So it's a good thing to kind of keep at the back of your mind as Rowdy and I continue to go through the story of the Bible capping off the book of Genesis and entering into Exodus, uh, this is going to be uh, important to be at the background. So I think if there's really any time to do this kind of episode, it would be as we're starting to wind down the book of Genesis. Now, this has been done before. Uh, A couple years ago, Father Justin Lyon, in his podcast on the Ephesus School, uh, The Way, He also did an outline of the Bible, which is a very good podcast, and I don't want to just retread the points uh, he made. So uh, I'm going to do my own, and I'm going to focus on uh, perhaps some different things, maybe a few more um, linguistic things in the text. Uh, Because really, when we talk about the Bible as a story, what Rowdy and I are trying to do, we're not trying to make it a sermon, we're not trying to... um, to do anything like that, to talk about uh, doctrine or catechesis or anything uh, of that nature, which can be kind of confusing because I, I don't think a lot of people really separate that out when they're studying the Bible. What Rowdy and I are primarily wanting to do, and it's been this way you know, for the past year since we've been doing it, almost a year and a half, that uh, we... You really just want to go in depth with the language, to use the language to help it tell its own story. So that's where we're starting from. So without further ado, uh, I think that we should just start right into it, because uh, this is going to probably be a longer episode, because there is quite a bit to talk about. So the first thing that we have to keep in mind is exactly what I said. This is going to be a study on the language itself. Hebrew is a functional language. There don't exist abstractions, really, in the concepts. Um, Andrea Bacchus, in her podcast, Vexed, which is also on the Ephesus School, if you listen to her episodes on translations, uh, it'll become clear as day what I'm talking about. So I'm not going to go into all of that. If you want more content in depth on that topic, I would certainly search that out because she does a wonderful job. So when we think about the language in that way, we also have to also think about as our background, what's this story about at its core? Well, ultimately, the Bible is the story of God. And so who is the scriptural deity? Well, when we're focusing on the language, we know that in Hebrew, there are two major words that get used to designate their deity. The first one is Elohim, which is the plural 
of El, right? El in the old Canaanite pantheon, before the Bible was written, we're talking thousands and thousands of years uh, before it was conceived, really. El was the father of the Canaanite deities. And the Elohim were El's children. So Elohim in those texts described the gods. But it's very clear uh, grammatically that when the Bible uses Elohim, it's using the plural to describe a singular entity. So there's one God, but he's designated with a plural name. And the reason for this is that when Hebrew emphasizes something, it uses the plural. So think about it like this. When we use the word God, when we're talking about the God that we believe in, we capitalize the G. And if we're talking about some other deity, we lowercase the G. That's essentially what the Hebrew authors are doing here. It's a similar thing that happens with the word behemah, which means a land animal. In the book of Job, when God is talking about the largest animal that he has created, the Hebrew uses the word behemoth, behemot, which is the plural of behemah. So literally, you could render it as animals or something to that effect. But because Hebrew doesn't have capital or lowercase letters, this is a clear and concise way to communicate this idea that this is the grandest of all. This isn't just any animal. This is the animal. This is a this is the largest animal that God has ever created. And so similarly, when they're talking about God, when they use Elohim, they're saying that this is the God. And in a sense, he has the power of all the gods. He's not just a god. He's not just the father of the pantheon. He is the power of all of the pantheon, but he's just one god. Okay? So that's the first thing that we have to keep in mind. In this name, also, in that broad range of speaking, he is the universal deity. So this is something that gets pushed a lot in the Bible, that Elohim is not just the God of Israel. It makes it very clear that Elohim is the God of the entire edits, of the entire land, of the entire earth. And we see this uh, principally in Genesis chapter 1 and uh, the first part of Genesis chapter 2, where Elohim is the only name that is being used for God when he's creating just the land and everything on the land. Okay, so what's the, the other name? Well, the other name, of course, is Yahweh. Now, there's a lot of scholarship about what Yahweh means, um, but the one that is the most straightforward, in, in my opinion, again, there are other ideas, 
But in my opinion, the the argument that makes the most sense is that it is a play on the Hifil form of Haya, which is the broad Hebrew verb to be. So if you know your Hebrew grammar, Hifil is the causative. So Yahweh then would not be the one who is, it would be the one who causes things to be. So it's a title of making something functional. That's the best way that I can describe it. So Yahweh is the one who makes things functional. And again, we can see this in the early chapters of Genesis, that God uh, is not just the originator of all things, but he is the very thing that gives everything their function. And specifically, this designation is given to Yahweh himself, that he is the great functionator. And actually, you know, you can see this play out in Deuteronomy 32.9, where Yahweh is given an allotment of inheritance as being the God, the local deity of the Israelites, of the sons of Jacob. And so, in a sense, Yahweh has him, is, is himself under the patronage of Elohim. So Elohim is the father of all of the earth, He is the universal deity. He has this universal patronage. And Yahweh is the local God, the local Adon, which is another word um, for the Lord, which gets used. If you've ever heard Adonai, that's how uh, modern-day Jews, that's how they substitute the name Yahweh. He is the local Adon of Israel. That's why in the prophets and the writings, when Israel follows other gods and they become married, so to speak, to Baal, their new husband, that's why it's talked about in terms of harlotry, because that's what, that's what they're doing. Yahweh is their God. And they're forsaking Yahweh, the God that Elohim allotted, to be his people, they rebel and they go after a different husband, a different God, and they go after Baal Hadad. So, okay, so if there's two different names and there's two different deities on the onset, then how is the Bible presenting one God? How are these two one deity? Well, um, It really has to do, again, with the function. Think about it functionally speaking in the text. The authors are doing two things here. One, they're introducing their deity as one who has universal patronage, that is Elohim, but they're also using a local deity who is under the patronage of the universal deity who works together with the universal deity and oftentimes is 
working in unison, that the deity exists in the biblical text as having two faces or perhaps being two sides of the same coin. And that is the sense that we get in Genesis 2-4 when we finally get the real name of this deity, which is Yahweh Elohim. It's the universal deity who makes all things functional. On the one hand, he functions as a universal deity who has the universal patronage. And on the other hand, he is the local deity of the people of Israel. But the difference between this local deity and other local deities is that other local deities don't have any concern for the outsider in their community. This is not true with Yahweh, where his primary concern is his people. He's also very clear that the main mission of the entire Torah, which we'll get into, is to bring in the surrounding nations, especially those who are far off uh, on the islands, so being the Greeks, and of course we'll get into all of that. Another difference between Yahweh and other local deities is that the other local deities, you read the mythologies, you you read the Baal cycle, you read uh, other Canaanite texts, and this is even true in Greek texts too, the, the stories of the Titans and all of that stuff. The children of the patriarchal god tried to overthrow him. They they are in a constant power struggle. They're constantly trying to be the ultimate deity of deities. They try to have their own mountain. They try to uh, have their own patronage. Whereas Yahweh doesn't function this way. He is totally in rhythm with Elohim. So another way that we can look at this and this will be my final point before we just get right into the story, is that in the Septuagint, when they translated the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew into Greek, they didn't transliterate Yahweh, and they didn't translate it either. What they did is they used the word Kyrios, which means Lord, and they translated Elohim to Theos, which means God. And so now, instead of having Elohim and Yahweh, you had Theos and Kyrios. You had God and you had Lord. And uh, instead of having Yahweh Elohim, you have the Lord God. In fact, that's how we get it in our English. Whenever you see Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh. That's what they're translating there. So the Septuagint translators are making an interesting point that the best, most correct way of of thinking about Yahweh is not conflating him with the universal patriarchal deity, uh, but seeing him as the one Lord, the master, the Lord that uh, was allotted to the people of Otheos, of God, the one who works in rhythm with the one patriarchal god, the Theos, and the one who ultimately brings in the outsider. So in that sense, we have this patriarchal deity, 
but also the Lord is our God from that God. So you could say that Yahweh is God from God. So that will be important when we talk about the New Testament and the role of Jesus. But uh, let's not get too ahead of myself, but hopefully that kind of helped uh, the listener uh, understand that the scriptural deity is functionally two different faces, two different functions, one being the patriarchal, uh, God of gods, you could say, Elohim, and one being the Lord, Yahweh, our local uh, chief husband, master, that we as the people of God, uh, he is our Lord who points us and directs us to his father, ultimately, which is the universal patriarchal deity. Okay, so let's get us into the actual story of Scripture itself. So Scripture is broken up into three separate parts. So we have the Torah, which means instruction. We have the Nebeim, which means the prophets or the spokespersons. And then we have the Ketubim, which we could say are the writtens, the written things, or the writings, as it's often translated. So the Torah is structured in the manner of a suzerain treaty, which for those who don't know, a suzerain treaty is when you have a larger imperial power, so to speak, and they, uh, they annex or conquer a, a smaller kingdom. And essentially they make that smaller kingdom a vassal and they give them a treaty. And this is exactly uh, how this plays out because in the ancient Near East, the, the treaty... Uh, always was really broken up into four or five different parts. And we can see this uh, corresponding to the Torah. So you had the preamble, uh, which really just uh, described um, the background. And then you had the prologue, which uh, sets things up. They they set it in motion. And uh, the, the prologue will typically be like a history of what... Um, the king did for the vassal. So it's really puffing the king up. And then you have the stipulations, which are the individual mandates of the uh, law, so to speak. And then you have um, the uh, the sacrifice at the end. That kind of solidifies it. And so if we think along those terms, we have the first book of the Bible, which is Bedeshit, which in uh, Hebrew um, means in the beginning or at the head of, in the head of is, is how, uh, it would literally be because it comes from Rosh meaning head. And, uh, in the book of Genesis, it goes like this. So we have Yahweh who, like we said, the functionator, Yahweh Elohim, the almighty God gives function to the world and creates a symbiotic relationship among the fish, the birds, and the land animals, which also includes man, Ha'adam, as the vassal over the created order. So this is a treaty, this is a suzerain treaty between the God and between man, who is vassal, whereas God is Melech, he's the owner. Through various stories, it's clear that the authors are drawing a dichotomy between the urban and the pastoral 
favoring the lifestyle of the Bedouin nomads in the Syro-Arabian desert as their proposition for scriptural living. What that essentially means is this. The shepherd in the desert doesn't rely on anything that he built himself. He relies solely on God because he's out there in the elements. He is like himself, the sheep who he pastures. They have nothing to go off by themselves. They are fully reliant on the shepherd to take them to the oasis. This is not true with cities, which according to the Bible, cities exist uh, in order for us to to protect ourselves, as if saying we don't need God, that we can do it ourselves. But cities don't last forever. Cities can be destroyed, but the land that the shepherd dwells in will never be destroyed. So that's the basic uh, outline of that. So, and then we have the uh, patriarchal narrative. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we've talked about in this podcast. And uh, they reflect this in the sense that they are all Arameans in origin. Uh, Arameans, of course, in the Bible are going to be representative of the city dwellers of, of uh, Mesopotamia, essentially. And uh, you have this dichotomy between the Arameans and the Hebrews. Uh, Hebrew comes from Eber, which means to cross over. So the word Hebrew has the connotation of shepherd movement, crossing over, going to and fro, that type of thing. Whereas the Arameans, um, part of that root word means like the highlanders. These are the ones who are living in the cities. So um, so there's this dichotomy. Whenever you... you uh, talk about the Arameans, or whenever the Arameans show up, or they go to Aram, they're always living in this kind of city environment. So that's important to understand as well. And it's also relatively clear that uh, the Arameans um, are likely the the background of the scriptural authors, that the scriptural authors themselves were city-dwelling Arameans. I mean, they're obviously educated, um, and, uh, there's, there's obviously a level of, uh, self-attack <laughs> in, uh, in the scriptural story. So that's all interesting as well. Um, so all these, all three of these characters that at some point in the book of Genesis are called by God out of the city center and into the Midbar. Midbar means desert and it means, um, literally it means from, from the word, um, because uh, it's uh, it comes from the root debar, meaning to speak from you know what is spoken, and and you can you can kind of uh, understand this in the sense of shepherd lifestyle. Because if if you've ever seen a Bedouin shepherd, you can just look at videos online. They um, they call uh, their their flock by their voice, and so the flock follow them by the call of their voice. Um, you can again you can watch videos on YouTube. It's it's really clear, but uh, that's probably where that comes from. So all that's super interesting, and it has implications for how the law works and all of that. Um, then we have the ending of the book of Genesis with Joseph. He closes that book out by displaying mercy to his brothers and enemies as God brings prosperity to him uh, and his enemies in the land of bondage, which is Egypt. Again, super interesting and uh, he functions in a similar way that Cyrus will later. So we'll get into that as we, uh, as we will eventually get there. So and then the next, uh, the next book of the Bible is Exodus, which in Hebrew is Shemot, um, which means these are the names. 
Uh, here we have something interesting. So we have Moses as uh, the prophet, as Nabi, on behalf of God. And um, this makes him functionally God to Pharaoh. So let me say that again. Moses speaks on behalf of God. So Moses is functionally God to Pharaoh in the same way that Moses is the one who brings God to Pharaoh. And uh, because Moses isn't the best spokesperson, uh, God chooses Aaron, who is Moses's uh, brother. So Aaron then becomes the spokesperson. So Aaron is Nabi. Aaron is the spokesperson. And Moses is God in, uh, in this context. You, you, you can see this clearly in the early chapters of Exodus. It, it lays this out uh, in this type of manner. And so, um, again, Moses is God because Moses is the one who is bringing God to Pharaoh. Because God doesn't have any other reference. God doesn't, uh, at, at this point, God isn't written down in the, uh, the scroll as he will later on in the story. There is no Bible yet. Um, and uh, God does not exist in the statues either, like the other gods. So Moses is functionally carrying out that role. And again, this will give context in the Gospel of John. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why? Because it was the Word that testified of the God. Right? That's, that's what it's uh, getting at there. And that's what uh, is, is going on here. It's, it's playing with the same idea. Okay. So, God uses Moses and his brother Aaron to warn Pharaoh several times to let the Israelites out of bondage. Pharaoh refuses several times, and the scriptural authors make it very clear that God has full control over the Pharaoh's actions. So, you know, God hardens Pharaoh's heart several times. And this is showing that God is the one who truly has the power, as it's demonstrated in the creation narrative. So all these other kings, all these other lords, all these other um, figures that have dominion over the people of the earth, they're pawns, they're jokes. God has complete control, and that's that's the function of that. A lot of people have trouble uh, with that uh, section in the book of Exodus because it makes God look as if he wasn't giving Pharaoh a choice. Well, that's that's not the point it's trying to make. It's it's showing that, look, these leaders, they're... they're like paper, <laughs> you know, they're, they're like ants, you know, they, they are no threat to you. You know, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but not the soul. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul, right? It's that, that type of concept. So God has total control over the forces of chaos and the forces of order. So eventually, uh, God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt and the house of bondage, showing God's power and demonstrating his grace to Israel, despite Israel not deserving it, because they grumble the whole time. They hate it. (laughs) And uh, so the point is very clear, that mercy is to be shown to the outsider and the outcast and the widow as a response to God's mercy. Because God showed mercy to you first, now you have no excuse. 
now you have to show mercy to the outsider. This is where scripture is really against the grain of its times. It used to be, you know, and and it is still today in, in some sense, I think, culturally, that if you're a peasant, if you're an outsider, if you're sick, if you're if you have leprosy, if you're not one of us, then there's something wrong with you. There, there, there. You either uh, offended the gods, or um, your ancestors offended the gods. There's something that makes it to where you deserve to be in your position, and so uh, we're going to look down on you for that. We favor the strong and the mighty and those with means because they have obviously received God's blessings and you haven't. Well, this is problematic according to the Bible, and the book of Exodus makes this very, very clear. And again, talk about like we we said in, in the book of Genesis, that God is calling the patriarchs out of the city and into the desert. This is a big story of him doing the same thing. He's calling them out of an otherwise really luscious environment in Egypt, where there's plenty of food, there's water along the Nile, and he's taking them into the Syro-Arabian desert, where it's just them and God. And they have to live literally on manna from heaven (laughs) to survive. It's a very clear image. So next we have Waikura, which means, and he said, Uh, this is the book of Leviticus. So now all of the action stops. They're in the middle of the desert and it's time for the law to be delivered. So this is really a book of stipulations. So this is the part in the suzerain treaty where you just lay out the rules. So you've had the preamble, you've had the book of Genesis, and you've had the prologue, which is Exodus. Now you have the stipulations. So this is the heart of the Torah. Literally, it's in the middle. It's the the uh, third book out of five. And so this is where all those individual laws of the Torah are laid out in detail. All the movement in the narrative stops, and we have clear provisions as to the division between what is common versus what is kodesh. Okay, so could, uh, that means holy, but it literally means taboo. So it's, it's set for, for a specific purpose, and it's making it clear that things that are taboo, things that are kodesh, things that are holy, are totally in the realm of God, whereas there are are other things where God um, allows us to partake in more casually. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, everything is owned by God, as as the Melech, he is the owner. But um, Leviticus, at its most basic level, is distinguishing between what's common and what's holy. It's making it clear that God still very much has all of the power. And just a little bit of things that he allows the humans to do. There are a lot of stipulations about it. There's a lot of rules, and it has to be done in a very specific way. So um, again, there is no such thing as ownership going on here. God owns everything, right? So no land is being um, possessed. Uh, Nothing is being possessed. These aren't religious practices that the Israelites now have, and they can do what they want with it. No, no, this is all God's. So that's what, um, at the end of the day, it's a very long book, and we will get into it eventually, God willing. But uh, Leviticus, that's what it's doing at a base level. 
So next is Bay Midbar. We've had the law, and Bay Midbar means in the wilderness, and uh, this is the book of Numbers. So the movement continues. A lot of people just think, oh, the book of Numbers, that's the one with all the censuses. Well, yeah, okay. Um, or the sensei, I don't know what the plural is, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of true at first, but then it's actually like a really action-packed book after that. Um, so it not only showcases the movement, but it showcases the instant rebellion of the Israelites after the law is delivered. This is important. Um, in fact, everybody fails. Aaron fails, Moses fails. Uh, in fact, the entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, are allowed to eventually enter into the wilderness. So uh, it's really interesting that we have all this buildup to the law, and then instantly it's being traversed and forgotten about. And that's the function of um, of the book of Numbers. That's, that's what's happening there. And so... Um, Moses and Aaron, they both fail to live up to their responsibilities, unfortunately. And that's, that's what happens. And so you've got the second chance. You've got the final act of this five-part drama that we call the Torah with Deborim, which is just called words. That's what it means in Hebrew, Deborim, the words. So again, this is a restatement of the law. This is why it's called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second law in Greek. Deuteronomos is how you would say it. And what's interesting, too, is that it's not just a restatement, but it's also making provisions that make sure that all of the ruling members, in particular the monarchs, which interestingly don't exist yet in the story, they appear later, but it, it preeminently uh, necessitates that monarchs have a copy of the law with them as a reminder that they're just like Pharaoh, just a pawn. That they have their power only because Yahweh Elohim gave that power to them. So that's an important point to understand. And that's how we end the Torah. It's very brilliant. Um, so next we get into the Nebaim. So these are the books of the prophets. And this expounds the themes of the Torah. So very interesting. So here, Israel is said time and time again to fail the basic instructions given to them by their deity, Yahweh Elohim. Worst of all, they wish to be like the other nations with a human ruler. So this gets described in the books from Joshua to Samuel. Now, interestingly, Ruth uh, it's not like how it is in, in Christian Bibles where Ruth is part of the uh, the history section. Uh, Ruth is actually in the next set of books, the Ketubim. Um, so it, it goes Joshua and then Judges and then Samuel. Uh, whereas in Christian Bibles, you have Ruth in between Judges and Samuel. But this is the older Hebrew um, Jewish tripartite division that we're going off of here where you have the books of the prophets. So just important to understand there. We'll get to Ruth later. <laughs> so so uh, these, are, these are the books of the Nebaim, of the prophets. And it's also important to note, too, that uh, the function of the book of Judges is essentially to show that Israel never needed a king. 
when things got hard, when, when things got rough and they needed a leader, God appoints for them judges who aren't kings because God is their king. But these judges function as sort of proto-prophets in the sense that they come and they establish justice and, and reestablish the law of God, and you have a, a series of them, and things go back to normal. So that's the function of the book of Judges. But it all turns into a disaster uh, by the time you get to the next book, First Samuel. And so um, God grants them this monarchy, again, kind of tepidly, but, and, and, it, and there's a lot of warning there. Uh, but uh, obviously it turns out to be a disaster, uh, to say the least. And the first two kings, Saul and David, cause havoc on not only the surrounding nations meant to dwell with them peacefully, but also their own nation. David also plans in his ignorance to construct a temple containing the presence of God for his own glory. His son Solomon begins his reign asking for God's wisdom, but uh, actually succeeds in building the temple. (laughs) So, um, so much for that wisdom, right? Um, He uses it very poorly. Uh, But his reign is also a disaster as he seeks after and gives worship to foreign gods. By the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom is split into two, and the northern one is eventually completely lost by invading armies, and Judah, the southern kingdom, is on the brink of collapse. Over time, the kings forget the commandments and the law of God, and as a result, the kingdom falls into even more chaos. So this is talked about in the book of Kings. Judah is also exiled, and the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi, all relay the same message, ultimately. God has not only punished Judah, but he's punished all of the nations. But all is not said and done. God will send his suffering servant, Allah, Isaiah, his anointed one, to bring the Torah to the nations so that the true Israel, the true assembly, may spread the good news, the basar, to the nations. As the four rivers of Eden spread the living water from the tree of life to the ends of the earth. So let's unpack this for just a second because this is critical. In Isaiah, of course, this is the suffering servant of Isaiah 40 uh, to 55. But in Ezekiel, too, you have this notion of the good shepherd, the king who uh, is turned into a shepherd. Right, so it's it's a uh, it's a play on David. In fact, it's it's swapping David because David begins as a shepherd and he's corrupted and turned into a king, becomes a king, whereas God's new David is going to be the exact opposite. He's a king who becomes a shepherd, who rules as a shepherd king, so to speak, and so that's going to be really important, of course, when we get into the. New Testament, but it's also really important for understanding the Psalms, and we'll get to that in a second. So um, we've also got this conception of the people of God as a kahal, or in the Greek Septuagint, as the ekklesia. This word comes from the Greek 
uh, kaleo, which means to call out or to, to call. And uh, ecclesia then are those who are called together. They're called from afar and they're brought to a place and they're assembled. So people don't go to an ecclesia, right? They're a part of an ecclesia because they were called beforehand. That's the notion of that word. And so that's important too, because what is he doing? He's calling not only Israel, but all the nations. Because, again, not only Israel is implicated here for their um, lack of charity to the neighbor, for uh, their evil and their violence, that's that's their, their uh, problem. And plus, their rampant idolatry. Again, the healing comes from the shepherd king who will come and gather the people of God into the ecclesia, right, and bring the good news, the basar. Now, basar is really interesting. So in Greek, we have evangelion, but evangelion, of course, is a translation of basar, which which means news, um, but uh, it's it's also the same word in Hebrew as flesh. So literally, you have this connotation that you have to be in the flesh to receive it. You have to receive it uh, manually, so to speak, or uh, you have to deliver it manually. And this is really interesting. So if you're going to deliver it to somebody far away, say the Greeks who are beyond the Mediterranean, then you have to actually go there. You have to be sent out. That's what the word apostle means, apostolos, apo, uh, away from, and stello, uh, to, to be sent somewhere on a mission. That, that's exactly what that means. And so you have to be sent there to hand-deliver, essentially, this good news, which is the Torah. And so that becomes the function of the apostles, again, in the New Testament. Uh, but we'll get to there. I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's important to understand, you know, what, what the New Testament was based on, because it didn't just come out of thin air, right? This stuff was there from the beginning, all along. And it's clear from, from these texts. So the final point it makes is that God's presence will not be in the temple. The, the, the temple doesn't, it's, it's going to be destroyed. In fact, it was destroyed in this narrative when the, um, when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And uh, so God's presence will not be in a temple. And even when it is rebuilt eventually, it will not be the temple, but it will be the scriptures that will contain the presence of God because God exists in the scriptures and it will exist in the heart of the evangelized people. So the the temple of God can be anywhere because it's it's anywhere where the scripture is proclaimed, anywhere where the Torah is pro- proclaimed. And again, the, the underlying crimson message under this is the same as before. Make your enemies your allies by inviting them in and let the Adam share the Adama, that is the, the ground which he and the animals were made from, all under the patronage of God. So that's the second part. That's the prophets. Then we come to the third part. This is the Ketubim, the writings. This is the third section of scripture. And this takes a bit of a different turn. This is primarily concerned with wisdom as sought after other nations, uh, namely the Greeks, that seems to be its audience. So the 
Greek Hellenized tradition of wisdom of Sophia, it's comparing that and contrasting that, uh, namely, with the wisdom of God, which of course is the Torah. So, namely, the charge of the Ketubim is to spread and instruct the wisdom of God, which is the Torah, to the surrounding nations. Again, the whole notion around Basar. Psalms and Proverbs, as well as Ecclesiastes, are David's and Solomon's recompense, respectively. Psalms also establishes God as the sole melech of the world. Again, this has been a crimson theme that we've been getting all along. The wisdom literature, then, shows what a true godly king looks like. This is the king that is introduced by Ezekiel and presents aspects alien to the actual reigns of David and Solomon. So the the David of the Psalms, for example, is essentially a different character. You know, for one, he's he's um, uh, lamenting his past actions. He's uh, penitent, you know. And 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 throughout the Psalms, uh, this this character is uh, reformed and molded, uh, which which is important. And and the power of that, you know, you have to understand his extremely troubling narrative. In uh, in the the second section of scripture, again, this is all literature. You know, um, we we can't get lost in the weeds about you know what's historical. Did the historical David, whatever that means, um, write the Psalms? No, David is a character which was previously established by the writers in the Nebaim section, in the prophet section, and it's playing on a character it already talked about, which is what it's doing here in the wisdom literature. So that's important to understand. So this new David, uh, described in the Psalms, is essentially, it's the same suffering servant described by the prophets who will bring the Torah to the Gentiles and whose kingdom shall have no end and will be reconsecrated uh, as essentially the, the Garden of Eden. It's, it's bringing the Garden of Eden back. And, and the, the Garden of Eden essentially is the whole world where everyone, the animals and the humans included, will live in harmony. Eden means well-watered, and so they'll be well-watered not with, you know, water that comes out of the ground, but with water that comes from above, from the living water, from the teaching. Again, if, uh, you know, the Gospel of John is ringing in your ears as I say that, there you go. That's, That's where he's getting that from. So the book of Job then criticizes philosophizing God, and Ruth emphasizes a friend, that's what Ruth means, who is an outsider, and uh, she is grafted in. You know, she's a Gentile who is grafted in. Um, again, that's that's the, the basic theme of the Ketubim section. Uh, so here's the deal. The wisdom, the chokmah of God, is precisely his instruction to all peoples. Therefore, to be wise is to mutter the words of the law day and night and to live closely by those statutes with God as not only the only God, but, um, you know, Yahweh, as we said, as the only Lord and the only King. So again, you've got this Elohim, this patriarchal figure, and you've got the Lord, Yahweh. I'm going to keep on hammering that because <laughs> it, it's an important point. Um, so, and then we have Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, this is interesting because in a sense, it kind of continues the narrative that we had in the prophets. Um, where uh, they rebuild the temple and all of that. 
But what's interesting is that it begins by telling of Israel's salvation from captivity and really Judah's salvation because Israel, in a sense, has been mostly lost, the ten tribes. But um, there's, there's two tribes that remain, and this is uh, Judah and um, uh, Benjamin. And they are essentially allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple by Cyrus. And so Cyrus becomes this messianic figure that is used by God, who is a complete Gentile, by the way. He's a Persian who gets used by God to, uh, to take them back to the promised land. And what's really fascinating is that you end the entire Old Testament, not with this story where they are brought back, but you actually end with a recap of everything that has happened so far in the two books of Chronicles. Those are the last two books of the Bible, of, of uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, that is, before we get to the uh, New Testament. And uh, it's really interesting because the whole grand finale of not only Chronicles, not only of the Ketubim, but technically of the entire Bible, is that they're rescued by the Messiah, who's not of the tribe of Judah, who's not a Jew of any kind. He's a complete Gentile. So you've had this entire section of Scripture, which has been about the evangelization of the outsiders. Israel is exiled to where they're out in outsider territory. And here comes an outsider king who is also a shepherd, according to God, if you read um, the second part of uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55, that he's a shepherd. Cyrus, my shepherd. Those words are literally uttered in the Bible. So Cyrus becomes that messianic shepherd king, the outsider, who saves the people of God. It's totally uh, unexpected. It's just like how Joseph, who, to be fair, was uh, technically a son of Jacob, an Israelite, but functionally speaking, by the end of Genesis, he's, a, he's an Egyptian. You know, he's, he's um, the, the, uh, the head governor of, of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. But he has mercy on his brothers and saves them, essentially, functioning himself as an outsider. And so that's Cyrus, and that's how the, the story of the Bible ends. So it's, it's a lot to go through, <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to uh, philosophize it further. I'm just going to allow you to sit with all of that. Uh, for a second. But that's not the end, of course. Next, uh, you know, just in terms of chronology, the Bible gets translated into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, and uh, some more books are written around this time. And uh, a lot of those are really interesting, and they, and they give us a picture that will set the stage 
for what happens in the New Testament. So uh, one thing that, that's, that's really important to note is the book of Sirach, Ecclesiasticus. And it's composed during this translation period. And uh, it's, it's kind of presented as an introduction for the Greeks into the Torah itself. And um, if you read the prologue to Sirach, it becomes clear as day that the uh, that Hebrew has primacy. Which actually, you know what? Let me let me read the prologue to you so you can hear it. So it says, Many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the other writings that followed them. So that's that tripartite structure we just talked about. And for these we should praise Israel for instruction and wisdom. Now those who read them must not only themselves understand them, but must also as lovers of learning be able through both speaking and writing to help the outsiders. Again, remember what we've been talking about. So my grandfather Jesus, who had devoted himself especially to the reading of the law and the prophets and the other books of our ancestors and had acquired considerable proficiency in them, was himself also led to write something pertaining to instruction and wisdom, so that by becoming familiar also with his book, those who love learning might make even greater progress in living according to the law. You are invited, therefore, to read it with good will and, and attention, and to be indulgent in cases where we may seem to have rendered some phrases imperfectly, despite our diligent labor in translating. Here's the important bit. For what was originally expressed in Hebrew does not have exactly the same effect when translated into another language. Not only this book, but even the law itself, the prophets, and the rest of the books differ not a little when read in the original. Okay, so that tells us, I mean, that speaks for itself, basically. Um, so it's telling the Greeks, look, this is in Greek. You'll be able to kind of get it, <laughs> but um, it's never going to be as good as the Hebrew. So it's an introduction to the Hebrew Bible, and it's an introduction to the Hebrew language, and it says just flat out that Greek is inadequate to uh, to cover the whole thing. So super interesting. Uh, one final note on the Septuagint uh, before we get into the New Testament is to talk about um, the Maccabean literature. And so in the uh, Septuagint, there were um, four books of the Maccabees. And just broadly, this kind of extra section of writings um, are known primarily in the Eastern Orthodox Church as the Anagignoscomina. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, they're known as the Deuterocanon, um, which, if you know Deuteronomy, as, as we said earlier, is like the second uh, law. Um, Deuterocanon is the second canon. It's, it's a secondary canon, you could you could say. Secondary not in the sense that it's not really the Bible. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's still the Bible, but it's, it's, uh, it's not secondary in that sense. It's secondary in that they aren't um, Hebrew texts, right? They were originally written in Greek. Um, whereas the Eastern Orthodox, they, they kind of look at it a little differently. There is kind of like a separated uh, 
sense of which these are um, scripturally helpful. Um, I mean, really, the the topic of canonicity—that's a whole other uh, topic in and of <laughs> in and of itself. But um, basically, anagnoskomena means those books which are good to be read, and uh, it it got that name from what I understand because these are books that were actually used uh, to instruct catechumens. Actually, before you know, they were uh, really inter- in- introduced with other parts of scripture that. Um, that uh, they they learned um, from this set, I mean, primarily from Sirach, but also the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, because it's a lot of it's just about um, living scripturally, living according to the law. That's that's it's it's very practical in that sense. It's a guide for living. It's it's also kind of philosophical in that way. Um, so it was used to kind of orient perhaps a Gentile audience into um, this you know, Hebrew, Judaic, uh, Semitic understanding. So that's interesting in and of itself. Um, but the ones I want to focus on just cause again, it's, it's important for what we're going to talk about with the new Testament are the four books of Maccabees. So the first one, it's just simple. It critiques the actions made by Judah Maccabee against the Seleucid occupation. Uh, Instead of relying on God and taking punishment if deserved, the Maccabees not only fight their oppressors, but impose their own religious law onto others rather than inviting them in. So they're not following the tripartite books of the Bible. They're fighting them themselves, you know, they're, they're taking matters into their own hand. And eventually we see by the end of the book that it's futile because the Romans, who were event- who were originally their allies, mind you, the the uh, Hasmoneans sought the Romans out as allies. Uh, it is useless because the Romans eventually betray them and overtake them. So um, all that fighting came to nothing, and, and and we see that that sense being played with uh, in the New Testaments. Um, so the Maccabees are not heroes in the biblical sense. Um, and uh, so this this gets us into kind of uh, interesting territory uh, that we're treading down. I mean, they're they're heroes in 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 a in a Judaic sense. They're heroes to the Jews of the time, but um, as far as the biblical story is concerned, um, they're not Hebrews. They're in fact they're very much the opposite. And so it gets really interesting when you get into um, Second Maccabees, which, uh, in a similar way to how in the Gospels you have um, the the same basic story being told uh, in different ways, uh, Second Maccabees is kind of similar, where it it treads some of the same ground and it takes place during the similar narrative, but instead of focusing this time on the various battles and the conquest uh, and and kind of like this forceful retaking of um, Judea uh, from the Greeks in this this battle between you know Hellenism and and uh, uh, traditional Judaism. You've got um, this book which focuses more so on the martyrdom of a character named Eleazar, uh, and also a, a character uh, who is unnamed, but it's the mother and her children um, who are also martyred 
And uh, this is placed in contrast, basically. This is seen as an expression of the coming suffering servant, right? And a model to follow rather than the violent and the futile response of the Maccabees. So it's kind of like an anti-Maccabees Maccabees book, in a sense. It's, that's, 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 its, uh, that's its crux and that's its focus. So uh, it's, it's interesting because it's like, it, you know, it's saying, yeah, there is a place for zeal that the Maccabees had, but the Maccabees went about it in a futile way, ultimately. And we'll see that played with in the New Testament. Next, we have Third Maccabees. Um, and this one is a little bit different. It tells the story of the Ptolemaic persecution against the Jews. But the Jews, embodied in Eleazar, rely on God to protect them, which is interesting. They don't fight back. And after an impassioned prayer, the Ptolemaic king forgets his anger, and leaves the Jews in peace. So a very powerful book, um, something that deserves a little bit more attention. Um, but again, it's this character Eleazar again. So interesting. Um, there's there's a lot to be said there, but but for now I'll just leave it at that. It is important to know um, Eleazar means God is my help, or uh, God is help, you could say. And um, you can see that clear as day in this in this story. The Jews, through Eleazar, rely on God, not themselves, uh, to bring them out of the situation, and God answers their prayer. Then you have the fourth book of Maccabees, and this one is a philosophical treatise. Again, what about? It's about the martyrdom of Eleazar. So again, <laughs> you, you see this theme, and it also talks about the mothers of the seven sons and against the abuses of the Maccabees themselves. And it's written from this uh, kind of quasi-Stoic um, philosophical uh, stance. So it is very Greek in the way that it's presented. Um, so again, it's it's interesting. It's like it's, it's, it's orienting the Greek mind to the story of the Bible. Um, so really fascinating stuff. And again, they get kind of uh, ignored. But um, it's a shame because these books have a lot to teach us about the biblical story. So on top of that, of course, you've also, you've got uh, the other books, Tobit, Judith, Baruch, and the Wisdom of Solomon. The Wisdom of Solomon um, is, again, is, is, is probably the main book that was used for catechesis, and actually the one that gets used the most uh, liturgically out of these books um, in the uh, Orthodox liturgical calendar. It's uh, read um, during, uh, during uh, Vespers quite a bit. Um, especially if it's a feast day of a uh, major saint. Because, again, it's all about living as a saint would, you know. <laughs> so um, really important uh, to understand there. So, yeah, so those are the quote-unquote so-called extra books. All right, very quickly, um, let's just talk about a, a little bit of history. I know this is kind of a longer uh, episode, but again, I just wanted to get this all out and just in one long thing. You know, typically I don't want to do long episodes like this, but this is just um, an example of of something that uh, really just needs you know one whole episode to just go through it. So we come 
to the impasse we're in. And historically speaking, the Romans took over the Hasmoneans. So now the Jews are once again under the boot of an oppressor, and they really want the Messiah. In fact, you can see, you know, you read Josephus, you read other sources of the time, it's very clear that um, the the Jews were in a rough spot. I mean, they break up into different sects. Um, there's this growing elite based around the temple, um, based around, uh, um, you know, this, this kind of Judaic identity, um, which has circumcision at the forefront. That's a whole other topic that I haven't talked about too much yet, because really, in the purview of the scriptural story, it's really not that important. But um, I have a whole episode uh, on circumcision on the podcast. It's just called All About Circumcision. So that one I go really in-depth in. And um, and then, of course, um, reading about it in uh, in Father Paul Tarazi's book, The Rise of Scripture, um, you know, you'll, you'll get, you know, You'll 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 get it said in 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 a way that um, is probably more concise and easier to understand than than uh, what I'm saying. But basically, uh, flesh circumcision existed in the Old Testament uh, to say one thing primarily: that God has control over the progeny; that uh, the the patriarchs are not um, building this progeny for themselves; that that their that their uh, line of descendants that their dynasty is not being made by themselves, that it's it's fully uh, in the power of God. And so he kind of metaphorically emasculates the patriarchs. And so that's that's basically what, what happens there. Um, okay, so you've got that. Um, but also, circumcision was also a way um, that uh, the outsiders could be brought in it's talked about in a very inclusive way in the Old Testament, uh, you know, specifically the Torah, because the rest of the Old Testament doesn't talk about circumcision, I think, for a reason. And um, we see this actually instantly abused with Jacob and his brothers. Um, and and we, we talked about this in the episode about uh, the rape of Dina. But um, they take advantage of it because they, they make a covenant with the Shechemites and then they um, they take advantage of their weakened state after being circumcised and they slaughter them. So they slaughter their new brothers who were made their brothers via circumcision. And so it makes it clear later on in the Torah that, no, no, it's not circumcision of the flesh that matters. It's the circumcision of the heart. And that is just the obedience to God's law, regardless of circumcision. And so uh, that's the, the thesis of, of, the, of the Bible. And, and uh, in Jeremiah, when it talks about the new covenant being made when the nations are brought uh, together under the aegis of God, it doesn't talk about circumcision of the flesh. It talks about circumcision of the heart. So really interesting, and and when the uh, when the Jews return to Jerusalem, and the Torah is reinstated, you know, in the Book of Ezra, there's no mention of circumcision being picked up again. It said that that the the law was not observed, so I guess you could uh, assume that circumcision wasn't being observed. But when it's reinstituted. There's no mention that circumcision came back. Circumcision doesn't appear in the biblical story until the Maccabees. 
when the Maccabees use it as a banner, as like a flag of their Judaic identity. And that's what they wish to impose the outsiders on. Not the the Torah, the law of God itself, that God is the sole Melech and owner and all of that. No, no, this kind of outward sign of obedience that I'm circumcised, I'm a part of the club, which was never meant to be a part of the deal. And so that's what happens with this first century uh, Jerusalemite Jewish culture. And that's precisely what the Pauline school is writing against. And so we have enter in the New Testament, which uh, there's various ways to, uh, to go from here. Um, I could go through it chronologically. I could start with Matthew or I could start with Paul. But I think for this uh, instance, I'm going to start with Paul uh, just to lay out what Paul's point is, what, what his writings are about. And so um, basically Paul is presented as bringing the gospel. Again, his first letter is to the Romans, so he's bringing the gospel, uh, the Basar, right, from uh, from the uh, Old Testament, which means the news, but the news that you have to receive in person, right, because it also means flesh, um, which in Greek, of course, is the Evangelion, as it is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, if I were to sum up Paul's presentation of the gospel— it goes a little something like this. There is only one God, Otheos, the Father Almighty. And there is only one Lord, Okirios, Jesus Christ. So this is right out of 1 Corinthians 8.6. And this is essentially what we were talking about with Elohim and Yahweh. So God is Elohim, Otheos, and the Lord, Okirios, is Yahweh in the Old Testament. Here it's Jesus. So if, if you haven't put two and two together yet, Jesus is functioning in the New Testament as Yahweh functioned in the Old Testament. That he's like the, the local deity, perhaps, of the church, if you could put it in those terms. And there is this patriarchal figure that uh, Jesus is under and... Everybody else is under, that the church is under, and that's God the Father, that God the Father has this universal patronage, and Jesus is the church's Lord. He is God from God, right? As it's talked about in the, in the Nicene Creed, that's, that's the, the wordage that the creed uses, and it's, it's um, you know, biblically sound, the way that it, that it describes that. He's God from God. There's God the Father, and then there's Jesus, who is the Lord, who is our God, allotted to us from God the Father. Okay, <laughs> so uh, in this proclamation of the gospel, all other gods and all other lords are smashed. In other words, the powers of the pharaohs and the Caesars to hold us in servitude are broken, and there's nothing to fear from them. The only thing to fear is the righteous judgment of God the Father. Being rich in mercy, God sends his divine Son to break the curse of the law, which is a death sentence to all who break it. So, 
the law, right? It's like a mirror into our own iniquity. It tells us all of our sins. And it's, it's a curse in the sense that if we don't follow it, we're bound to death. That's Paul's whole point. Jesus comes, dies, breaks the curse because God raises him up. He dies under the curse and he breaks that curse when God raises him from the dead. You can read about that in Galatians 3, 13 through 14. So, all are invited to be baptized. That word baptizo in Greek means to be immersed, to go under and come back up. That's that movement in the water. To be baptized in order to die to the law as he did, as Jesus did, and to be raised unto life as Jesus was, to be adopted sons and daughters of God, with God the Father as the family patriarch. At the last judgment then, all will be called to account for how they behaved in light of the mercy they received from God the Father. God will not show mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That's in James 2.13. So it is critically important to remember the grace given at the resurrection so that our fidelity, through our fidelity, pistis or aman in Hebrew, to the gospel teachings we may bestow that same mercy to our brethren. To fail to do so, is to reject the gospel. That's, if I could sum up Paul's point in his entire career, that's, that's it right there. That's the gospel. It all begins with this statement. There's one patronage, God the Father. And for the church, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the narrative of Jesus, of course. So the narrative of Jesus and the narrative in the New Testament is written about in four volumes, four gospel books. There's, uh, the first one is Matthew, which, which really functions as a summation of the entire New Testament. In fact, it begins with Vivlos Ieneseos. So Vivlos is book and uh and it's it's a big book it's not vivlon which is a small book it's a big book uh which which uh uh vivlos is is kind of more like a collection of books so it is like in a sense the gospel book <laughs> um and it and it has all of those pauline teachings and of course you know you, you know the story of jesus so i don't ha- really have to go into too much in depth in there, but it's it's the same thing. And he's modeled, of course, after the um, suffering servant and after uh, the um, the good shepherd in Ezekiel, and also the Psalms, right? And again, this comes from how Paul describes Jesus. So it's 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 all there, and and again, Jesus as the Lord is functioning in the same way that Yahweh functioned in the Old Testament. But now, Jesus is a human being. And part of the reason for that, uh, again, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting that, um, and I'm, I'm not going to say that this was the reason, but um, I think that it's interesting that um, in this hotbed of desire for a messianic figure, a King David-like human figure to come, and and also this kind of Greek romanticization of heroes and of our history, that in the biblical story. God sends a human being 
someone to be a hero for the people. Some, it's almost what they want, but it's not really what they want because he, he comes and uh, it's like a Trojan horse where Jesus is uh, like, you know, the the messianic figure everybody wants on the outside. That's the horse part. But on the inside, it's just, it's the scriptural God. It's the teachings of the Bible. It's the anti-hero stance of the Bible. Jesus is an anti-hero, not in the sense that like he's not heroic in his deeds. He is heroic in his deeds. But he's he's uh, an anti-hero in the sense of like the original sense of the words. Anti just it doesn't mean against. It means um, instead of. Right. He's the alternate hero to the messianic uh, expectationers. I don't know if that if that's technically a, a way to say that, but that's the whole point. He's this Trojan horse essentially. And so you have the Gospel of Matthew, which again is the summation of the entire New Testament. And then you've got the Gospel of Mark, which, uh, which, which, which it's interesting um, because it kind of reads as, a, uh, as like a smaller summary of Matthew, even though it is there are parts where it's different and it has its own stories. Um, but it's also typically understood to be the oldest gospel. But one thing I find really interesting is that you have the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, and then at the beginning of Mark, you've got the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's like it, it's like it repeats. It's like it, it's um, it's like the authors don't don't trust you to just hear it once. You have to hear it again and again and again. And that's that's been the case throughout the Bible. We've heard the same thing over and over again. Um, and this became clear to me actually uh, when I was at church uh, for the. Um, for the vigil, the, the Friday night vigil on Good Friday uh, in the Orthodox Church, where they read all four Gospels back-to-back throughout the night. And uh, that became clear to me. I, I, I unfortunately didn't stay for the whole thing. I got through, like, the middle of uh, Luke, and then I had to go. but Because, uh, um, you know, it was, like, 4 o'clock in the morning by that point. But, uh, you know, I, I, I listened... To Matthew transition into into Mark, and then Mark transitioned into Luke, and it's really interesting. It's like, here's the gospel story. Okay, here here it is again and again and again. You know, um, so I think that that's why there are four, and it's really powerful if you hear them back to back. You know, it takes a lot of time. Uh, <laughs> it takes it would probably take like a whole day to go through all four of them, but uh, but it is it is really fascinating nonetheless. So, and then you have Luke, which is primarily a uh, a criticism of the Jewish leaders in their treatment of the Gentiles. You can only, you know, just, just look at the uh, parables, right? That's where the parable of, um, like, uh, the rich man and Lazarus comes from, right? Which, uh, which we've talked about on the podcast before. And then you've got the Gospel of John, which I think is really interesting because it's like it, that's when it loops back to Matthew because you begin with the word, the logos, um, which, uh, which again, uh, is functionally God because, uh, it presents God to you. That's the point it makes in the prologue. And that word, which, uh, gets brought to the world through Jesus Christ in the gospel of John, after Jesus Christ returns to his father, Jesus Christ promises the paraklitos, the comforter. And then we end with a book 
So through the work of the Comforter, through the work of um, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, the words of Jesus Christ, which are really just the, the words of what came before in the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, it's codified for us in a vivlon, in a small book, so to speak, right? Um, which is really interesting. And uh, and again, we loop back to Matthew, which begins with Vivlos Yeneseos. We end with a book in, in John and go back to Matthew um, with the summation of the whole thing, which is why Father Paul Tarazi um, argues, I think, reasonably, that Matthew was written last. And uh, it's, it's placed at, 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 the, at the front, at the top, so that, you know, it's kind of like a loop. So I think that that's really interesting. Uh, and then we have the Acts of the Apostles, which is the second part of the Lucan diptych. So it's the same author as uh, the Gospel of Luke. And um, it's, uh, it's really interesting because it describes um, the conflicts between the apostles and the Jewish elite, which is really interesting. And we get um, a narrative about Paul. And uh, we end with Paul uh, on his journey to Rome, and, uh, and immediately then we have his letter to the Romans. And we have the Pauline letters um, from Romans to Hebrews, which is interesting because we begin with Romans, which is to the Gentiles and then Hebrews, um, which is uh, presumably to the Jewish people. And then you have the uh, Catholic epistles, which are the uh, written by the pillars that Paul criticized in Galatians uh, chapter two, I believe, um, where he says, you know, he went up to uh, Antioch and he opposed Cephas to his face, uh, Peter. Of course, um, Peter, James, and John are the three pillars that he criticizes because they they uh, fall back on the gospel. They start excluding the outsiders. And so Paul has to correct them. And then now they write letters endorsing the Pauline gospel. Um, and so they, they essentially they submit to the, to the gospel. That's the role of those letters. And, it, and that, that ordering is really interesting. And then, you, you know, you have, you have um, James, which is the first one. Um, which is uh, Jacob, of course, in, in the original Greek. And that was the name of the patriarch, who is also Israel. And it's addressed to the 12 tribes. So again, interesting how that's all laid out. And then you have first and second uh, Peter, right? And then first, second, and third John. And then you've got Jude, uh, which is the same, you know, word that gets used for Jews, right? Judeos, it's, it's the same thing, the, G, the Judean. So you begin with Israel, and then you end with um, Judah. Again, it's, it's interesting how it's, how it's laid out. <laughs> um, and then you have the book of Revelation, which the less said about that one, the better. But uh, uh, in short, it's a revelation of hope to the Christians, to the people of God facing persecution from the Romans, that they will face 
persecution if they followed Jesus, because the ways of God are not the ways of the world. But, um, but again, it's the perseverance through faith uh, that brings forth that ultimate salvation, and that God will come and he will judge the world and he will raise the dead and he will judge every man according to his work and to his deeds and the righteous will be at the right hand of God the Father. Another thing I want to talk about too about the New Testament is that uh, unlike the Old Testament, it focuses on a third agent of the scriptural deity, uh, which is the Holy Spirit. And uh, just the long and short of that is this, that uh, both Ruach and Penevma both mean wind and they mean uh, breath. Uh, basically, it's this active force. It's, um, it's, it's in a similar way that you can look outside and you can see how the wind affects the leaves. You can see how it affects the trees. It moves things. And um, if it's destructive enough, it can be like a tornado or a, hur- or a hurricane and it can uh, bring a storm and it can destroy things. So it's, it's, um, it's active. That's, that's how I would describe the, the Holy Spirit. Um, and we, when you see Paul describe things in spiritual terms, he means in acti- actually doing what the scriptures prescribe. That's what it means to be spiritual, right? It's not this kind of mystical thing, nor is it um, something that you just sit around and contemplate. That's not what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is active, and and you can see this activity in the New Testament, that whenever the Spirit is brought up, an action is being done. So that's that's something that's important to understand. So when we talk about the paraklitos, and we talk about that um, being the Spirit of God, um, being identified in that manner, that is, again, the action of those words being written into a book. And when Paul talks about um, living in, in, in a spiritual manner, it means to live as if the Spirit is leading you to live differently, to live according to the gospel. That's what it means. So the, the Spirit is very much divine in the, the New Testament. And so uh, in Matthew, of course, at the, uh, at, at the end, right, you've got that triad, that divine triad. You, you might even say a, a, a trinity. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've got the patriarch, the patriarchal deity figure. You've got the Lord, Jesus Christ. And then you've got the Lord, the giver of life. <laughs> it's just like how it is in the creed. The creed's very well uh, constructed in that way. And giver of life is, is important because, again, he means breath. It is the, what allows us to be alive in Christ and to do the work of the gospel, which, again, which is not a mystical thing. It's literally just to do what Jesus said to do, which is to practice the religion that is pure and undefiled before God, which is to serve the poor, the, the lowly neighbor, um, to, to, to feed the hungry and house the widow. That's what it means, which has been the theme all along. That's what the spirit, that's what it does for you. And it brings us the words of Jesus Christ, which are words from his Father. The Spirit brings that to us and presents it to us in a book so that they can last forever.
And so that's the biblical story. And again, I'm not going to elaborate on it uh, from that point because it, it is so much to comment on that you know you can't you can't just boil it down to like a sentence or two, right? I mean, you have to go through the whole thing as I just did. And so uh, it's something to sit with, especially if this is you know a, a, a new thing for you. Um, and uh, it's something to keep at the back of your mind when you uh, continue through it. But like also another thing at the end of Revelation that I didn't say is that it's closed. It makes it clear that you can't add or subtract anything. So that's it. Revelation's the end. The biblical story is over. There is no more to say. Um, so it's, 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 it's all that needed to be said. So that's why it's important to study it all. Because there is no revelation outside of it. And there is no, you know, there, there, there are no new prophecies and there are no new words from God. God said the whole thing. And that's in the Bible. That's why we need to go back to it. That's why we need to consistently study it. So, um, yeah, I'll just leave you guys there. <laughs> uh, I know this was a longer episode, but if you listen to the whole thing, God bless you. Um, and uh, I, I hope you learned something. Um, and uh, if not, if this is all stuff that is pretty familiar to you, then I hope that it was in some way helpful, helpful for you. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I hope that you just have a blessed week, and hopefully, God willing, Roddy and I can continue to go through the book of Genesis. But uh, um, if uh, life happens like it has been for the last few weeks, then I'll just I'll keep doing um, some extra episodes about topics that I find interesting or important to talk about. Okay, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> have a blessed Lent.